This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Uh, hey, one programming note that we thought we'd uh, let you, y'all know. Thanks for listening to Quick to Listen. We are going to take a break. Uh, we almost never take a break with quick to listen. We have done episodes over holidays, vacations. Uh, you've heard a lot of great uh, guest hosts, but we are going to take a real break uh, over the holidays, starting here at Thanksgiving, uh, going through uh, Christmas uh, and New Year's, and we'll be back in early 2022. And over that time, we are going to uh, rethink some of the stuff we're doing with quick to listen. We dig it. We think it can be better. We're going to figure out how. We would love it if you told us what you think uh, would be better also about Quick to Listen. You know, and we can think fairly radically about that. Email to send stuff to is podcast at christianity.com. You might want to put uh, Quick to Listen in the subject line because as you can imagine, we're getting a lot of Mars Hill email to that address as well. And yeah, we're, we're, eager, we're eager to hear from you, eager to make the show uh, better. I'll just add one thing, Ted. Like, I know, Ted, you've been here for a year and a half, I want to say, but we have been yeah, doing this well, podcast not, yeah, for almost six years. And the format, as some of you no doubt know, has largely stayed the same. And there's strengths to that format. And there's also weaknesses to that format. So that's why it would be helpful to you to bring your imagination. We're also closing in on 300 episodes. So there's lots of milestones that are soon to be reached, um, but also ways that we think that we can do things better while still kind of giving you guys a chance to think really deeply about your faith and the news, which is what I always feel like the show does really well. So thank you for being awesome listeners. Thank you everyone who has started listening to the show. I know we've had so many new people in recent months and that's been awesome to get to know all of you guys really well. And hopefully we will get a chance to bring some of these ideas to life in the next year. 100,000 Americans died from April 2020 to April 2021 due to opioids, according to numbers released this week from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The majority of the deaths have come via fentanyl, which accounted for more than 75% of all fatalities. Most of the time, in these instances, fentanyl was used in combination with drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine. Who are those who lost their lives? This is according to the New York Times. The vast majority of these deaths, about 70%, were among men between the ages of 25 and 54. And while the opioid crisis has been characterized as one is primarily impacting white Americans, a growing number of black Americans have been affected as well. There were regional variations in the death counts with the largest year-over-year -year increases exceeding 50% in California, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Vermont's toll was small, but increased by 85% during the reporting period. This week on Click to Listen, we wanted to talk about the opioid crisis. What is our response as Christians who are in relationship with those affected? And what is our responsibility when we are far away, or at least think we are far away? 
and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted, we have some very, very grim numbers here, and I would love to get a gut check from you on your reaction to seeing these really startling stats. I think one thing you probably know about me is that numbers um, <laughs> numbers for me are, are difficult. I don't, especially large numbers. Like I'm like 100,000, that's a lot. But I'm like, how large is that? Because, you know, you hear numbers about, you know, X number of, you know, snake bites and shark attacks. And it all kind of goes into my head as like, there's a lot. and But there's also a lot of people. For me, I was like, how dramatic is this? Wow, what's 100,000 deaths look like in America? And that's huge. I'm, here's what I found out just with looking at the CDC site, the numbers from right before the pandemic. If you take all of the suicides, they happened 2009. And all of the people who died from influenza and all the people who died from pneumonia, you still would not be at 100,000. You'd be really close, but you would still not be. Wait, you still ever, not be you mean? No, in, no, no, I'm sorry, in a year. Okay. So we're talking about a year. We're talking about a, an, annual, an annual death, right? This will probably be the sixth or seventh biggest killer in the U.S. next year. That's amazing. That's bit, you know, it's more than diabetes. It's significant. Once I kind of got out of there, I'm like, well, wow. I mean, I knew that it was a, it was an issue. And I know that addiction, you know, addiction is something that I've got a lot of connection with. That's not an urgency. That's, that's, it strikes me as an emergency. I'm glad we're doing a podcast about it. And then my gut check is like, wow. So, as you mentioned, you know, there's a strong localized focus, but that, as I do with a lot of these things, lots of questions like, is this something where if I said I want to address this in my neighborhood, are there going to be a lot of cases in my neighborhood? Is this how localized is this problem? How spread out is this problem? Obviously, to get to 100,000, you need it to be, obviously, that's got to be nationwide, urban, suburban, rural, all those things. Uh, Morgan, what's your gut check? I think it's one of those things where it's, just kind of staggering, I guess, and also in the lack of response, I suppose, in many ways. I, I know that it's not like people are indifferent to this. There's been books that have come out. People have tried to sue one of the major companies that they believe, um, you know, essentially encouraged Oxycontin, um, which is one of the things that has been what people have been addicted to over the years. And, you know, that there's also different technologies that people have tried to make more widely available for when people overdose. So it's not as if there's been done nothing, but it is interesting to kind of compare and contrast it with our COVID response. And obviously at this point, COVID has killed seven times as many people in the United States as this number is. And so it makes sense in some ways that there's a response, but I think back to the days when we thought that 100,000 Americans dying from COVID would be a lot, right? And we were already mobilizing very strongly in some ways at that point. I also just think part of the reason I wanted to read those figures about who died was because I guess it felt like very young, right? It said 70% were between the ages of 25 and 54. That feels really sad. And if you read the larger New York Times report, it talks about how the life expectancy in the U.S. Um, went down last year, partially because of COVID, but also because of this. 
And that's really sad and depressing to me. I mean, these are people who may have families, children, you know, they're not people who are being affected at the end of their lives. That's a little bit surprising to me, given that I do think I would normally think that something that would hit people who are younger, that's, you know, that's affecting millennials this strongly and Gen X would have a much more mobilized response than it is having. And obviously I think we'll probably get into this about why it's so many men, but that makes me very sad as well that that is so disproportionately like that. Anyway, I'm just mostly sad, I guess I will say, and eager to kind of understand where we as Christians fit into this conversation. So go ahead, Ted, tell us who our guest is to help us unpack all of this really brutal information. Our guest is Andrea Clements. She's professor and assistant chair of the psychology department at East Tennessee State University. And she is co-founder of Uplift Appalachia, which helps churches care for addicted people. She's also one of the leaders of the what they call the Strong Brain Institute, which we will probably reference uh, later on. It is not directly brain studies, but is connected to adverse childhood experiences. She goes by Andy. Call her Andy on this podcast, but if you're going to Google her, Google Andrea Clements. Thanks, Andy, for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. All right. Andy, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your community. Where do you live and how did you first notice opioid addiction entering it? I am in Northeast Tennessee. We, we are about 20 miles from North Carolina and about 20 miles from Virginia. So right up in the tip in the mountains. And um, this was, is near the hub of the beginning of the opioid crisis. If you followed any of the press on the pill mills in Appalachia and so forth, Southeast Kentucky, Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee is sort of ground zero, Southwest and also in Southern West Virginia. There was a lot of the initial Oxycontin and overprescribing and things like that here. We moved here in the 90s and that was occasionally on the news. You would hear things about this, but it was not really in my on my radar. There was press around that, but it was usually in terms of crime or this, that, and the other or whatever tabloid kinds of things. But I got to noticing it more heavily in the early 2010, so 2012, 13, 14. And that is because I got involved in a program. I was volunteering in a program that is for high-risk, high-need felony offenders with addictions. So it's kind of like the last-ditch effort before you go to prison. It's one more try, and it's sort of like day jail. And I went and took lunch and just got to know the people. And this was like a ministry of our church. It was like, I want to, to help out a friend who started that program. And I just got to see the other side of how common this is. I ended up visiting people in jail, but going to court with people. And you just saw this revolving door of the same person with a different face all day long in the court system. And so it was that overlap that alerted me to just how common it was here. It was getting common then and it was already fairly common, but it was kind of in the shadows. I just walked in and saw this this whole subculture that I had no idea existed. So it's been something that sounds like it's been very present in your yes. community for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And there's been some different milestones that have happened along the way. I mentioned at the top of the show that Oxycontin was something that many people sir first suffered from addiction with. And more recently, it's been 
fentanyl. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about fentanyl and how that's really changed how we think about the opioid crisis. Fentanyl, and one thing I should say is it's it's remarkably stronger than that. It's because it is so strong that it's so dangerous. When you take any kind of opioid, you gradually get tolerance to it so that it takes more and more to get the same effect. Say if you're using, gosh, a Lortab or something like that, it's not very strong. Oxycontin is much stronger. Fentanyl is much stronger. And so the it's the strength of it that is such a danger for overdose death, overdose and death. What has happened is that we did we have just recently gotten more of a fentanyl problem here. Um, and I can explain in a little bit why that why I think that is true. It's a marketing thing because it's inexpensive and it gives a better effect to whatever you're using. So you mentioned at the beginning that it's with methamphetamine or it's with cocaine or something like that. It's almost like a little extra kick with what you're taking. It's a downer and meth and cocaine are uppers. And so if you mix them, you can do more of both, if that makes sense. People that think they are getting one thing, they may also be getting fentanyl if they aren't tolerant already to opioids. That's when you so often see these overdose deaths. It's not that they were not intending to use drugs. They were intending to use drugs, but they were not intending to use that drug. I think that's where a lot of this danger of fentanyl itself comes from. Partly, again, just like OxyContin, one, it's another marketing tool. Someone is making money is generally what promotes this. The person who is addicted ends up being exploited and maybe dead. I just want to kind of walk through. I mean, we I want to get into some of the processes and that kind of thing. But I really appreciate what you just said about the you know intent and what's intended, what's not intended. Is there a typical journey on opioid and especially fentanyl, but but these kind of opioid journeys? I mean, we are talking about some very specific physiological <laughs> processes that happen that that are different than some other addictions, like a process addiction or something like that. Like what? Help me understand a little bit kind of chemically what's happening and, and kind of the general trajectory. How does it go from someone getting a prescription for a painkiller to these massive numbers of deaths? I know everyone's story is different. I don't want to lump everyone together. But is there a fairly common narrative that we're trying to interrupt? I think there are a couple, a couple of them. There's some people that may, you know, they get their wisdom teeth out. They, they have some opiates for a little bit. It stops hurting. They stop taking. They're fine, you know. And nothing ever happens. Some people they have some sort of either injury, surgery, chronic pain. They are prescribed, and I don't know if you've you've heard so much, but the got to stay on top of that pain. It's sort of the don't let it get out of hand. So take these every four hours, even if you're not quite hurting that much. Whatever that's been the the sort of status quo for a long time to not let anyone hurt. You take it as prescribed, and by the end. It's a relatively quick dependence that you can develop physically. Mm -hmm. And so then you do hurt when you stop because it actually increases your pain sensitivity just by taking it. So, so that's one route. And then so you can kind of accidentally get addicted to a substance through, say, prescription pain medication. You've got other folks that you're a teenager, you're playing with your friends and it's like, oh, mom's got some pills. Let's try those. Oh, that's fun. Let's get some more. You go to grandma's, you get some out of the medicine cabinet. And so it's more recreational. You sort of fall into it that way. And so I think those are different routes. And then you've got some people 
and I, I listen to another podcast and the fellow interviews people. Most of them are in recovery. So many of them, and this, I've actually found a couple of research articles since that have, have looked at this, is the this feeling the first time you took whatever, say you took somebody's Oxycontin and it's like, that's the love I never felt. It's like, oh my gosh, I want to feel this way for the rest of my life. And it's, and oftentimes that's somebody that was either highly anxious or neglected or, and this is where that ACEs stuff begins to overlap. You know, you had this tumultuous upbringing and then all of a sudden a substance can calm you and make you feel good and warm and loved. I heard people say it's like being in a warm blanket. And that's more of like this instantaneous, I've found my thing. So all three of those are quite different routes. But by the time your body gets dependent on it, it looks very similar. I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are going to be familiar with 12-step programs Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, programs like Celebrate Recovery and those kinds of things. You know, a lot of those are oriented both to things that they create some chemical dependencies like like alcohol or, or what have you, and also process, you know, brain chemistry stuff like like gambling or what have you. Given this process, it seems like the third group that you mentioned may be especially helped by the, some of the stuff that 12-step programs address. But is this significantly different? Do we need a very specific program on opioids that would be different than putting someone who's struggling with opioid addiction in the same kind of church or, you know, community oriented recovery program uh, with someone who's in with alcohol or in with some, some other things that help me understand how unique the process for breaking, for breaking the narrative is for opioids now might differ from some of the other addictions. Well, I don't know that it is that different because one of the things that we know, like even meth activates opioid receptors. And in lots of substances activate opioid receptors. Love activates opioid receptors. Yeah. Running yeah. a marathon activates opioid receptors. So, so I think if we're talking like neurochemically, I wouldn't say that you need something different. Looking at human connection as treatment for addiction, this replacing, trying to replace whatever your substance is with that naturally occurring endorphins from connecting with other people. That is a lot of what is motivating what Uplift Appalachia is doing, and we'll get to that. And that is why one of the reasons I think that 12-step programs are as effective as they are, and they are effective. There is a lot of research that shows that 12-step programs are effective. I think a lot of that is it's that place where you have a safe, caring set of humans with skin on that are are filling some of that. Can you give us a picture of... Some of the the ways that opioids were being or opioid addiction was being treated before the pandemic, and then how the pandemic interrupted or disrupted, undermined these systems that had been set up. The gold standard treatment for opioids at this point is medication. For a long time, it was medication, and that's with replacement medicines. So, so you've probably heard of methadone, which is we can go full agonist. It's it's a it's it's just it's like heroin except legal. So it, it does all the things that that heroin does, and the the time is a little different, things like that. But and it's controlled. Buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist opioid, which means it doesn't it partly fills your opioid receptors. And then there's what's called Vivitrol or Naltrexone, which blocks them, so you can't it won't have an effect. 
And so those are the, the common treatment medications. Buprenorphine is the most common these days. And so that's usually usually prescribed over a month. You get a month prescription for up until last year, might have been 2019, I think it was 2020, there was a basically mandatory counseling element of that. You have to have behavioral health along with that. And then the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, who's sort of the rules this world, basically said you've got to provide the medication and you might also provide. It was not, it was no longer you have to have both. One of the things that our particular town is fairly famous for in Tennessee is that we several years ago were at the point where we had met 1,200% of our need for medication-assisted treatment here. That means we had lots of extra going out into the society that was not going to the person who needed. And so we had a huge diversion problem where you basically got, and this was very much the model of the Oxycontin prescribers back in the day. It was overprescribed, sell part, come back, do your cash. There was no insurance. It was just you walk in with your dollar bills and I will hand you a prescription and then you go get more money however you need to. So that's the way things were happening. And that is still what is recommended is like frontline, let's let's give them some replacement medication because there's such a high risk of overdose if they're getting stuff off the street. It may have fentanyl. Well, buprenorphine doesn't have fentanyl in it. You know, so it's, it's, it's a prescription drug, so it's, it's not going to have the fentanyl. So it is safer. And I think that the reason we didn't have such a fentanyl problem here when the rest of the country was, was because we had such ample supplies of buprenorphine. And then also, you know, 12-step, we have a lot of 12-step meetings, things like that, all the way from very faith-based, like Celebrate Recovery and Regeneration to Smart Recovery, which is 12 steps with no God at all, you know, and so, and everything in between. So lots of that going on that was available. And then the pandemic hit. Everyone scrambled because the immediate thought was, oh my gosh, these people are dependent on these substances. Because like, if you're on buprenorphine, you are just as physically dependent on that as you would have been on heroin or whatever. You have to have your supply or you go into withdrawal. There was this scrambling to make sure people were able to get their prescriptions, but their offices weren't open. So it became just like a drive-by, get your script, drive-by, get your, get it filled with really very little monitoring. So there was a lot of provision of the medication without any of the wraparound services that go with that. And that, I think, is where we're seeing, and I don't know if if you've compared that 100,000 to previous. The previous year, we had actually in 18, I think 2018, the national overdose death rate had gone down ever so slightly. Tennessee still went up, but but the national rate had gone down like, you know, a point or something like that. The next year it was back up, but it was around 72,000, I think. So we're talking a 30% increase and far more than that later. But I mean, before that, it was, you know, it had crept up over years, but never at the rate it did during that first year of the pandemic. It was just... Every month that that report came out, and it lags a bit, you can see, because the April numbers just came out, but it was like, oh, it's even higher, it's even higher. And you just see this curve going up steeply, 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 steeply. And I think a lot of that is that that isolation thing, that lack of connection thing. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a pretty medicalized response. So, like, you know, I'm a journalist covering this, I can cover it. But other than that, like, if it's a largely medicalized response, I'm kind of like, well, good luck, doctors. Good luck. Good luck, addicted folks. Hope you are able to get the pills you need. I'm sorry that the pills aren't really a whole lot better. 
But our churches, I mean, our individual Christians, other than Christians in the medical community, is there anything, is there any connection between the Christian community and the kind of medicalized and kind of drug-based response? There was a previous organization before that you read about, I'm sure, in the Duke magazine. The Holy Friendship Collaborative was sort of the precursor to Uplift Appalachia, and I won't go into how one became the other. We were trying to see how we could get the medical community and the faith community talking together about this. One of the things we found was a lot of people, when we're asking about what they thought about addiction and how it should be treated, things like that, a lot of people said, oh, that's a medical thing. It should be handled by medical people, handled by medical people. And I see that in a lot of things, not just medical things. It's like, oh, let me get you to a resource. I'll make a referral. Now you've got a person or whatever. And it's almost like the church feels okay. And what we at Uplift Appalachia are trying to say is, yes, there may be medical things you need. There may be social service things you need, whatever. But have the person with you go with the person and then bring them back and keep them instead of just referring them away for someone else to take care of. Well, and that's a lot more work, a lot, 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 a lot more work. (laughs) But I think that's what's more effective. And that's one of the things that I see missing in a lot of the church. I don't want to cast this version on the church because I think some of it is, and I was one of those people that is like, I didn't realize this was going on under my own nose, you know, until I was out there. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about you. You mentioned Uplift Appalachia. What exactly is its model and why specifically does it see the church as an answer to opioid addiction? It started as there was another organization that was doing some of the training about addiction and things like that. And we were a sister organization and we had designed a, we we started out as we were going to do a, a transportation program. And that came out of, we planted a small church in a really high need, high addiction, high poverty, high homelessness area of Johnson City. And this was the population that we wanted to to serve. And one day, my son was actually one of the pastors at that church. The church has recently closed, but he had this like light bulb go off because we were talking about what can we do? What have we been doing? He said, really well-equipped, well-grounded group of folks that wanted to reach this neighborhood we gradually reached it. You know, whoever was walking by, we were between the VA hospital and the soup kitchen. And so we got a lot of business, shall we say. We had lunch every every Sunday. And so people would come in and gradually became incorporated into the church and so forth, but they didn't drive. And so we, we had a college graduate driving a disabled veteran with an addiction history every Sunday or whatever. And they got to be friends. And we saw the veteran get better and better and better. By the way, he is employed, has a house, all that stuff now. It, was, it wasn't what we set out to do a program. They just became friends. That, we said, what if we try to help churches to do that as a ministry, but not just to give somebody a ride, to get them point A to point B. They would get to from point A to point B, but like purposefully, like the person giving the ride has a, an ulterior motive. They have an agenda. It's like, I want to love you into a healthy place pull you into a community. And one of the things we know about people, particularly with opioids, they don't seek connection with other people. It's like the, it's like the opioid fills that. They tend to isolate and don't readily connect with folks. And so you have to, you know, I have to almost chase them down <laughs> to, to, to make this connection. And that's why we think it's so important that it's the church because most people without 
a Holy Spirit love driving them to care for the least of these is not going to take their afternoon off and go seek out someone that doesn't want to see them and take them to a probation appointment, you know? <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, gosh, look, if 100,000 people are dying right. and it's heavily concentrated uh, in Appalachia, then like this is one of those areas where like, you know, I would think people have much more direct family connections and, and friendship connections and a lot of those kinds of things. I would think there's, there'd be a high eagerness where churches would be more directly asking what what are we as a congregation doing about this? What like is there that sense of urgency, or is it is it still a cell? Is it still something where you're like, yeah, it's a problem, and the cell is like, and the church can res- can be responsive. No. And by here they mean like in our in neighborhood, our not yeah, not our in our church. not in our congregation. Because yeah. I would imagine a lot of churches would say, well, we don't have that problem in our congregation because drug drug addicts don't often you know show up. I'll, I'll tell you, I had my sister was addicted to substances for years. She passed away from addiction in 99. And this was long before I took this on as a cause. And I would love to say, oh yes, it was for the love of my sister. It wasn't. I was a terrible family member to an addicted sister. I, I know all the things not to do now, you know, but I've lived as the family member and you just get done with it. But that's another place I think the church can step up. And that is if you've got a family that has uh, an addicted family member they need your help. It's totally unavoidable. And the others, it's like, well, how did you raise them so wrong that they did this? You know, it's, it's just like all this. Uh, Even if yeah. people don't think that, the person may take that on anyway, you know? And so, so there's burnout. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So let's, let's, I'm eager not to maybe jump to solutions because there's a lot that I want to explore here, but since we're talking about it now, let's talk about it now. Intro steps. I'm thinking, are we talking like the meals ministry thing is something that we're starting with? Like meals ministry to folks who are struggling with addiction and to, and to their families? Is that a foot in the door? Is that like a, a whole lot of it? Or is it just like, hey, let's make sure we're including people who are addicted and their families in this care too? Or is like, yeah, yeah, that's good. But what we really need is something else. One of the things that we found as we taught people about adverse childhood experiences and this, this ability to try to give people the benefit of the doubt and give them a safe space to talk and things like that is once people understood, they came up with their own creative things. Ooh, mm. this will be helpful to somebody. And so they would just go do their own thing and they'd come back and say, this is a program. We, we taught the, the nurses at our St. Jude's branch here. And they said, we were trying to look at what might be tra- traumatizing to our kids. And we saw, you know, and they, and they came up with a plan to address it. We didn't even know that happened, nor how would, we would not have known how to address it. And their place looked at what they were doing and changed how they were doing it. And so I think what we would like to do is help people, help people in the church better understand just what's going on. Well, they haven't really seen anybody in withdrawal if they're saying, that. <laughs> you know, it's like, right, right. It's like yes, if we duct tape them to the wall and, and, and had dogs surrounding them, maybe they could stop if they wanted to, but it's not that simple. But then also I taught a seminar in this uh, year before last, like the pandemic semester, uh, the spring of 2020. But some of what we went over was like what people go through and what are the social supports and what's going on physically, but also like manipulation tactics. And that's one of the things that, and, and anyone who, people who are addicted to a substance can tell you, this is the ways I was manipulative. Because you think about it, this is your lifeline and you're going to do what you have to do to get it. Even understanding that and how to set boundaries with people and how to help them without enabling, all those kind of things. It's developing a relationship with the person, warts and all. Tell me about that challenge. You've mentioned two challenges that I I see the poll so far. One is the, I'm afraid I might do something wrong. And the other one is, I'm just done. Both of them kind of having some similar source, which is just like, I don't really understand what's happening here. And it's like, this is really, really, really hard. Are those kind of the two barriers you mentioned that like this church that you were engaged with before the show you're mentioning was so successful that it, it kind of became a, a victim of its success in some ways? But what was sustainable? Yeah, the word was unsustainable. Yeah. <laughs> what have you learned through the the hard parts of trying to, of, of actually having a church that was highly motivated on this and kind of having to learn hard lessons? Well, I think one of the things that we have, that we learned and now even have taken to like doing trainings is just the numerical balance. We were small. Some of the people left because of, if you're in med school, then you go to residency. Well, you know, if you plant with four med students and their spouses, yeah, four, right. eight people are going to leave in four years. You know, it's like, it's like, well, there they go. You know, yeah. and so, so that was unavoidable. But we didn't do a good job of growing up more of us while we were doing that, you know. And so you get a little bit thinner, a little bit thinner. And I think we were overconfident in our bandwidth. 
as people say, if the church wanted to take this on some part of this, whatever part it is, we started out thinking, you know, everybody's got their person and we'll talk about Jason in a bit. I had Jason and we're thinking more like a five to one, 10 to one ratio makes more sense just so that you can tap out. Think of it like having a toddler. Yeah. Sometimes you yeah. want to go to the bathroom by yourself, you know, just right. <laughs> um, having almost a support network for each person who is either an active addiction or new recovery. You know, once they get a little further on, then they can be part of the team, you know, but, but while they're still really fragile or whatever, then, then having enough people to share that burden. Let's talk about how much work it is. I mean, you know, obviously we carry each other's burdens, but you know, when I'm say, I'll I'll pray for you during that hard meeting you have, like that's one level. Are we talking like full-time job? The style? Um, I, I mean, it, just, for, for- it depends. It depends. One of the things when I do that, when I talk about this, this is not everybody's cup of tea. I know that, you know, it's like, this is my passion. So that challenge, I think, and, and, and it's hard to say we need to have a 10 to one ratio before we even begin while two mm-hmm. people die of an overdose down the street. And I will say that people that came to our little church died of overdoses between services. Yeah, I mean, like between, you know, like between Sunday to Sunday, not between. Right, <laughs> right. No, no, right. I mean, that was not uncommon to, to have someone there in the morning and they died that day. You know, I would love to say it was uncommon, but it was not uncommon. So Jason is, he's 44. He's been in and out of jail since he was 19, mostly in jail since he was 19. Was addicted to mostly opioids, mostly opioids. Grew up in like, you know, the government housing and had a couple mentors when he was younger, but he and he and his brother and his sister have all struggled with opioid addiction, all been incarcerated off and on him mostly. He has 42 felonies. So I know that because we had to count them one day. As he says, he was a bad guy. He stole a lot of cars. He wasn't violent. He just stole a lot of cars and used a lot of drugs and things like that. In prison in 2014, he made a profession of faith. And since then, He's had a couple of little skirmishes when he was out briefly, but but not nothing like he had been before. But I met him. I had been mentoring folks at this this corrections program I talked about before. And he came in, he was released from jail on probation in 2017, went into the office, and he had been basically incarcerated for, you know, what, 20 years, not quite 20 years, so 18 years, whatever. Had no idea what to do with himself. He when he got out, he ended up having surgery. They gave him an opioid. Um, and so, and oh then so he immediately was back on, on opioids and he went into this probation office at the program where I had been in tears. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, whatever. And they said, uh, 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 we've got this lady's phone number. Why don't you call her? And so he cold called me one afternoon. I was here at work. Cold called me and basically just spilled his guts. He said, I, they let me out of jail. I'm taking, I'm back on opioids. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to work. I don't know how to live. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so anyway, we started bringing him to church with us that summer, 2017. And we would pick him up and take him to church. It was just a, maybe a month, six weeks. And he disappeared completely. And knew, didn't know where he was, you know, and he just off the face of the map. And then I ended up speaking at a conference on campus here, trying to, get the church to be aware of the opioid crisis. And I was speaking on this and I just said, let me tell you about this guy. Everybody, it was like 2000 people there. I said, would you just pray for this guy? I haven't heard from him, fell off the face of the map. The next afternoon, he called me on the phone and said, Miss Andy, 
I'm in jail. I'm at the jail. I'm going to turn myself in. I'll call you when I do it. And he called me back in about an hour and said, okay, I'm in. <laughs> so, you know. And so anyway, he got out again the next year for a little while, bombed again. We were trying to get him sent to treatment and all of this. Anyway, they said he was going to have to do his 10-year sentence, but that was fall of 2018. And he just found out last week that he's going to get paroled in May, which is, is great because of the little, he's in a little, little bitty jail in a little bitty county, like one of the top five poorest counties in the country. Um, but they have a great program where he goes out and works during the day and he works, he gets to go to recovery meetings, he gets to go to church, he gets to direct traffic for parades and things like that and is doing fantastic. He's going to stay and live there, stay there and live there instead of coming back here, which is absolutely wonderful. I do a follow-up question for you about Jason, which is that, you know, over the course of this long-term friendship that you've had with him, you've probably reflected on things that were healthy about how you approached him and things that were not so healthy. What have been some of those things? I can tell you when, when he was out in 2018, he did come to church all the time. He did get in that program that I was talking about and we got to know each other much better. And he had an apartment and I would pick him up. I would take his, him and his mom to church. She lived in a different place at the time. And so I got really to know their whole family well. And the whole church just embraced him. And he's, it's his church. It's, that's, that's what he calls his church. And he, he still calls it his church, even though we don't exist. During that time, he did, he relapsed. He was doing yard work and somebody paid him in Suboxone instead of money. And he said he kept mm-hmm. it for about four days, I think. And he finally just couldn't stand it anymore and he used it. And he just went mm. off the rails and he ended up driving without a license. He's never had a license, driving without a license and got pulled over and he was using more then. And then he disappeared again. And that time, I, I mean, he was like family by that point. And I can remember driving around in the middle of the night looking for him crying, you know, just it's like he's got to be somewhere. It's a thing to be prepared for because your heart will get broken. But I would rather that than have not known him and not been instrumental in his life. I am his safe person. I I have to be on call 24 hours a day. And it's like, no, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. <laughs> so. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't is... I mean, just in this conversation, that's weighing, that's weighing pretty heavy because I'm just trying to think of like how to mobilize, you know, the, the shepherds who leave the 99 to go follow the one, the, the assumption there is that you've got the sheep, the sheep, that's the one that you go grab and you bring it back to the fold and it stays in the fold. They're going to, you know, recovery health is not a straight line. You know, you need people walking with folks over and over and over again and, you know, creating systems where the, the caregivers have space to to breathe. There's a sacrifice here, but it's a sacrifice that still needs to be, you need to depend on, on God's energy, but also at the same time, man, like there's Sabbath rest in, in that caregiving. There's communities that need to come around folks so that it's not just, you know, one person that's always getting the same call at three in the morning. But at the same time, like that's, you know, that's where friendship is. It seems to me like after this conversation that what we're really talking about is like, forget your metrics, forget trying to plan, you know, like our church is going to get super involved in rescuing people from opioid. It's like really like we need to go find our person 
mm-hmm. as a you know most churches are small churches. I'm not usually a kind of guy that's like give me a hard number here and, and we'll <laughs> and we'll check it off our box. But no, but like like what kind of community do you need that's going to be intimate enough to do the real love and caregiving and be a family to someone who's walking through this, but is big enough so that it's not like completely tanking the one or two caregivers. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think a lot of it is like having a well-layered community, if that makes sense. So one of the things that we found, even though we were kind of against the us-them thing, us, thing at church, we realized that sometimes those of us who were trying to intentionally care for others needed to powwow together, retrain and recalibrate. And it's like, ooh, let's try this way, which you can't do in front of, say, Jason sitting there. It's like, just a sec, Jason, how do you think we should address it when he does this? <laughs> you can't do that. And so, so there has to be some of that, just like staffing sort of retraining discussion, focus group, whatever. How can we do that differently? I mean, when we planted the church, before we planted the church, we would go and just walk around this neighborhood. Just it's like, okay, if we want to be there, let's go meet people. And one of the med students and I would just go walking and like take a bottle of water and give it to people or something like that. And we would talk to somebody, sometimes we'd pray, whatever. And then we walk away and we go, Oh, that went terribly. Gosh, what can we do next time? All right, let's try this. You know, and it was very much a trial and error and okay, God, what are we doing next? I know. <laughs> and, and I am a planner and I'm, I do statistics, you know, but day to day, it's much more, even when somebody, you know, something comes up, it's like, okay, Lord, I don't even know how to address this. Do I answer them? Do I not? Do I present this thing? Do I not? Whatever. It's like, I just have to trust that he can figure it out better than I can. So I I don't have a hard and fast, oh, do it this way. Now, what we talked about, we've, we've been looking for funding for two years now to try to fund a human being staff person to sort of orchestrate this for us. And we still don't have that. We Talk to, somebody. to orchestrate like best practices. Just, how are we going to, how are we going to train churches? How are we going to be able yeah. to, if they want to do the transportation, whatever, just someone, because we get lots of, even your requests, we get lots of requests to go speak somewhere or our church wants to do this or whatever, but we don't have, everybody has other jobs right now. And that sounds so unscientific and unstatistical. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned this before, I think the, the, the prayer aspect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, Morgan's in Honolulu and, and I'm out here in, in Wheaton. Those are pretty different contexts for finding finding folks who are struggling with mm-hmm. uh, opioid addiction. Very different than from where you are as well. You know, one thing on prayer, I think that I've encountered a number of times is like, if you hear a podcast like this or you read that Times article or something like this and you're like, holy smokes, like there's action I need to take here. Praying that like God would bring someone into your life that you can, you know, be, be part of their health. Like God answers those prayers. There's that initial reaction of like, I don't know anyone who's addicted to opioids. Like, start praying and well, keep your eyes open, and God will God will bring that person. But in addition to that, like <laughs> I, praying and keeping your eyes open, like so. I think especially in non-Appalachian contexts, places where you know sometimes keeps up some of these things over wrap. Uh, under wraps. We're in a COVID period where people have disappeared from our churches. We're like, did they move away? I don't know where they, you know, or are they struggling at home? Like there's this, what a weird time we're in. Like, yes. how would you advise someone in like, you know, me here in Wheaton to open my eyes a little bit more to ways that I can start being part of the solution for people who are trapped? I still come back and it sounds so simple and it's not always, is the, the being 
a safe person that someone can talk to. I guess not treating somebody like a science project and not, but, but, and not expecting them to have everything together, but just having conversations. And this is something that just being able to tell people, you know, there, there are people that love to be on a stage and, and speak to the crowds that I am not that person. I do it sometimes, but that's not me, but I am absolutely all about going and plopping down on the curb beside somebody and talking, you know, somebody's just sitting there. It's like, okay, nobody else is talking to them. I'm going to talk to that person and not about, are you using and what, what milligrams and are you afraid of fentanyl? But you know, where'd you grow up? And you you got to, I love your dog. He's very sweet or whatever, just something just like people conversations. And so that just treating people like equivalent, valuable human beings, <laughs> just that, that, that I think, and you can do yeah. that anywhere. Anyway, yeah. let me tell you one other, because Jason is, he is right now a very good success story, which gave, made me feel like, you know, God's gift to uh, the addiction world, but I am not. So <laughs> let me tell you one other story real quick. One of the things we see, it's almost like we're going to go out and do some street evangelism and bring back as many cards as we can to people who pray to prayer or whatever, you know, just yep. that, but it's like, Oh, check this one's off drugs and this one's off drugs and this one's off drugs. But thinking of even if they're not, they're still a valuable person worthy of time and care and love. And even if they don't want to be off, you know, it's like, it's almost like we get this idea that if you're willing to get fixed, then you're valuable. Yeah. Tell Um, us the story, Andy. Okay. So there's, there's a girl who, um, she's, I think she's 26 she came to church a couple years ago, three years ago. I don't know. Anyway, really bright girl. She's so bright. And I've watched her just spiral deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. She has a lot of like baggage from the past and things like that. But she has been in, I would say in the last year and a half, 30 treatments facilities, maybe. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, she'll go to a treatment facility. She'll make it four to six days. She made a couple weeks once. And it's like, nope, I want to go use it. She goes and she, she will just, and she's very public about it, but it's like the pull of using is so much stronger and so much easier to her than it is to face the demons that she has to face to not use. And she's found ways to always be able to get drugs and always to be able to get to the next treatment place. If she bails from one, she can always find another one. And it's almost like she goes to get a shower and get some food and then she's out again, you know, it's just like tag up for a bit. But we, we were talking about this, you know, human connections, treatment for addiction thing. And she told me, we were talking on the phone one day and she said, well, aren't you supposed to, I can't remember how she said it. It's like, aren't you supposed to be able to love me enough that I don't do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a fairly epic, question there it is and i said i thought so but i am rethinking that. <laughs> yes. mm. <laughs> um, yeah and so so it it's so it's so hard and and she professes faith i mean it's like she thought at one time she went to a church here and it's like they prayed over me and i'm healed and i'm done and it's good and i'm all good and that lasted you know three days or whatever and it's like, okay, I think that was not the the thing that was not your mark. It doesn't mean you won't be. And, you know, she goes from 
from one day thinking, well, I'm just going to die this way. I don't see any option to one day. I said, oh, she came a couple of weeks ago and sat in my office for a couple of hours and talked about she would love to do the kind of research that I do. And she would love to, and she's smart enough to do it and would love to be on my side looking out, helping rather than being the one that needs it, you know. But then she was going to visit somebody else down the street where she was walking to because she doesn't drive or anything and used on the way. And I don't know if she got arrested there. I know she got kicked out. It's like, what do you do? You know, it's just, it's not an easy fix problem. It's not a, oh, here's the, here's the formula that does not exist. Andy, I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about how doing your work and being in relationship with people who are struggling with addiction has shaped your faith in ways that it's made it tougher and also ways that it's made it more beautiful? Um, I think it, well, I know it has. It has forced me to be far more reliant on God. I mean, I have a PhD. I've had a PhD for 30 years. We can easily say, oh yeah, I know a bunch of stuff. I can fix things or whatever. It seems like such an insurmountable problem. Like it's, it's, it's moving a mountain. And I know that I cannot myself do that. And so more and more and more. And when I said the, the beam of light thing, I, that's what I tell people. It's like, I, I honestly, in my head, think of shine me a light. I'm going to go there and I'm going to wait till you shine it somewhere else. And then I'll go there. And the things that I've gotten to do and the things that I've learned and the successes along the way is all God showing me that. I mean, there's no other explanation that just the things that I do now, I have a, I have a friend and we, I call her my spiritual caffeine because we meet about once a week through <laughs> the coffee or lunch. And we talk about what we're both doing and we pray together. And it's just this, this tag up. And we, we say, we'll be praying about something. I'll say, can't wait to see how this works out. You know, it's not that it's not going to, we know it's going to now it's, we've got enough history. We're both old women. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we, we, it's like, can't wait to see how this is going to work out. And you look back and you see all of these things and it just makes it that much easier to rely on him to give you the answer you need. And if you're not getting one, you don't need it yet. You know? <laughs> so. Well, thank you for a very stirring conversation, sharing these stories, your wisdom, your research, people who have reactions to all of this. I'm sure many of you guys have stories out there that you want to share or experiences that you think would be relevant in how we see this, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. And it's when everyone has a chance to share something that has recently brought them joy. Over to you, Ted. I was in Philadelphia at the headquarters of the American Bible Society for a CT board meeting. If that sounds familiar, I was at the American Bible Society a couple weeks ago for a, a meeting about uh, biblical literacy. So I, I'm, I'm doing no travel during COVID, even late COVID, except to the American Bible Society headquarters. That's pretty much the only place I go. It's funny to be in the same Major place. Major deja vu, right? Major deja vu. But it is, it's cool if you've ever had a chance to go to their Faith and Liberty Center. That was precious in and of itself. But my precious moment was just a few blocks from there is Christchurch. And, you know, I've done um, like Mother Bethel AME, which is the other direction in Philadelphia. Never had been uh, down to see Christchurch, which is kind of the big Anglican church there. But it was just nice to kind of see that this trip. The guy who was rector of that church, head pastor of that church back at the time that the Declaration of Independence was signed has been just a, a story that I've always found interesting. 
gave the kind of prayer uh, as the First Continental Congress got started. They were not going to have a prayer because there were too many denominations that were fighting. And they had this guy come in and he gave this apparently amazing prayer that really unified folks and very dramatic prayer. And he became kind of the hero of the American Revolution. Um, and then uh, a few years later, he was the enemy of the American Revolution because he had written uh, a letter to George Washington suggesting that, uh, that Washington uh, surrender. Whoa. Uh, interestingly enough, his views on independence never really changed. What, what he thought when, when he kind of gave that uh, initial prayer, he, he opposed what British were doing, but he, he was against independence in 1774. The uh, emotional tide of the Americans had shifted very dramatically. So he ended up being exiled to England. He had to kind of escape to England. He was only let back when he was near death to be buried with his family. I've always found that story fascinating, especially as a Christianity Today editor who feels like, you know, going back through the CT archives, I'm like, we have not, we are saying the same things that we, we were saying 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. CT has got this flags that we've planted, but, you know, people accuse us of, of moving all the time. And it's like, we're trying to be consistent. Seems like other people have moved. Anyway, I find it certain kinship with this guy. So it was nice to see, you know, obviously Christ Church is, is bigger than just Jacob Duche, but it was nice to see the church where that is associated uh, with him. So anyway, that was my, that was my precious moment this week. I'm on social media at Ted Olson. I wrote an article on Jake, Jacob Duche when we had a small digital magazine called The Behemoth. So if you just go to the CT website, search for uh, Duche, D-U-C-H-E, you should find that article. Yeah. Morgan Lee, you're back in Honolulu. What What is bringing you joy? So I signed up to be a mentor through this Christian ministry called Common Grace. And last week, the executive director of it invited me to come hang out with her team, I think the team is about six people, and talk to them about working at CT and talk about faith. And it was a great conversation and really nice to talk to other Christians who are passionate about using their faith to inspire the work that they do in the world, but also talk to Christians who aren't too much in Christian industry, if you know what I mean. Obviously, they are a nonprofit, so they partner with different churches and are aware of different things. But, you know, we focus a lot on Christian industry in some ways at CT, or at least I'm very cognizant of it in my job and what is going on. And it was great to hear how these Gen Z and millennial Christians were making sense of the stuff around them and how they were motivated in their work. And I was really delighted that Aries, who is my friend, asked me to come. So thank you, Aries, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Anyway, people can find me on Twitter. I am an M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Over to you, Andy. I should say, and I, I, we may have said this at the beginning, but I am at a state university. So secular as they come, state university. And I think of it as a mission field all the time. And I do get to, because I do incorporate religious things into my research, it's sort of like I get a pass and I get to, to do those things. But what that causes is for students to students that are Christians to gravitate toward me to help me with my research or just to come by and visit or whatever. And in the last week, one of the students is the one that I was, was said I was mentoring in that recovery program that just commenced. They don't graduate, they commence and then they keep working with it and so forth. And I got to go be with her 
and hear her speech at the end and things like that. And she is going to continue on. She works with me in my research lab and is planning to, to sort of follow in my footsteps. And she is in recovery and doing amazingly. And in that same week, another fellow who has come to our church a couple of times also graduated from here. And he just called me out of the blue the other day and said, so I've decided I really need to grow some and I'm just looking for somebody to read the Bible with. Could we do that? It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And, and I said, I said, what if my husband and I do that? It's kind of weird for, you know, an older woman teacher and a new student. But I said, what if, what if we both did? And, and so, but just, you don't have to look, you just have to open your eyes, you know? And so just the, the chance to do that and kind of be a little glimmer of light and a very secular university is quite nice. Remind people where they can find you again. Uh, yes. Um, I, well, I, I am on Twitter and never check it. So why don't we, I, I am fine with my email address and that's just Clements okay. at etsu.edu. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. And that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Faith Indovu. If you have comments, questions, feedback about this episode or in general, you can send it to podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also available wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.